Section 7 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 7. Book 3, Part 1. O thou who from so great darkness was first able to raise so effulgent a light, shedding a lustre on the blessings of life. Thee, O glory of the Greek nation, I follow, and now place the steps of my feet formed upon thy impressed traces, yet not because I am so eager to rival, as because, from the love which I feel for thee, I desire to imitate thee. For why should the swallow contend with swans, or what that is all similar, can kids with trembling limbs and the strong vigour of the horse perform in the race. Thou, O Father, art the discoverer of truths. Thou suppliest to us paternal precepts, and from thy writings, O illustrious teacher, as bees gather from all blossoms in the flowery glades, so we feed upon thy golden words. Golden, I say, and most worthy of perpetual existence, for as soon as thy system of philosophy began to proclaim aloud the nature of things as it arose in thy divine intellect, the terrors of the mind disperse, the walls of the world open, I see things conducted throughout the mighty void of space, the calm divinity of the gods appears, and their tranquil abodes, which neither winds disturb, nor clouds sprinkle with showers, nor snow falling white, congealed with sharp frost, inconveniences. But the pure air is always cloudless, and smiles with widely effulgent light. To them, moreover, nature supplies all things, nor does any cause, at any time, diminish the tranquillity of their minds. But the regions of Acheron, on the other hand, are nowhere apparent, nor does the dark earth hinder but that all things, whatever are done beneath our feet throughout the void, may be seen and contemplated. Under the influence of these wonders disclosed there, a certain divine pleasure and dread penetrates me, amazed that nature, thus manifestly displayed by thy power, has been in all parts revealed to us. And since I have shown of what kind the primordial atoms of all things are, and how, differing in their various forms, and actuated by motion from all eternity, they fly through the void of space of their own accord, and since I have also demonstrated by what means all individual things may be produced from them, the nature of the mind and of the soul now seems, next to these subjects, proper to be illustrated in my verses and there must be driven utterly from our minds that fear of Acheron which disturbs human life from its very foundation, suffusing all things with the blackness of death, nor allows any pleasure to be pure and uncontaminated. For as to what men often say, that diseases and the life of infamy are more to be feared than Tartarus, the successor of death, and that they know the consistence of the soul to be of the nature of blood, or even of breath, if their inclination happen to lead them to such an opinion, and have no need at all of our reasoning and instruction, 
you may perceive, for the reasons that follow, that all these observations are thrown out more for the sake of praise and vainglory than because the belief itself is settled in their minds, for the very same boasters, exiled from their country, and driven far from the sight of man, disgraced with foul guilt and afflicted with all calamities, yet still continue to live, and whithersoever, notwithstanding, the unhappy men have come, they offer sacrifices to the dead, as if their souls were still in existence, and immolate black cattle, and send oblations to the Dei Manes, and, in their calamitous circumstances, apply their minds much more zealously to religion than before. For which reason it is more satisfactory to contemplate a person, in order to judge of his character, in doubtful dangers, and to learn what he is in adverse circumstances, since words of truth are then at least elicited from the bottom of the heart, and the mask is taken away while the reality of the man remains. Furthermore, avarice and the blind desire of honours which drive men to transgress the bounds of right, and sometimes, as the accomplices and ministers of crimes, to strive night and day with excessive labour to rise to the height of power, these passions, I say, which are the wounds and plagues of life, are nourished for the most part by the dread of death. For, in general, infamous contempt and sharp poverty seem removed from a pleasing and secure state of life, and seem to dwell, as it were, before the very gates of destruction. From which cause, while men, not submitting to die to avoid those evils, but restrained by a false terror of death and its consequences, wish that they may escape far and remove themselves to a distance from disgrace and want they increase their property with civil bloodshed and greedily double their riches heaping slaughter on slaughter they cruelly rejoice at the sad end of a brother and hate and dread the tables of their relations from the same terror in like manner envy often wastes men away they grieve that he who walks before them in shining honour should be powerful, should be looked upon with respect. They complain that they themselves are tossed about in obscurity and dishonour. Some pine to death for the sake of statues and a name, and often to such a degree from the fear of death does the hatred of life and of seeing the light affect men that with a despairing mind they commit self-murder forgetting that this fear is the source of all cares, that this violates modesty, that this bursts the bonds of friendship. This, in fine, prompts mortals to overthrow piety and virtue. For men have often betrayed their country and their dear parents while seeking to avoid the regions of Acheron, since as children tremble and fear everything in thick darkness, so we, in the light, fear sometimes things which are not more to be feared than those which children dread and imagine about to happen in the dark this terror of the mind therefore is not the rays of the sun or the bright arrows of day that must dispel but the contemplation of nature and the exercise of reason first then i say that the mind which we often call the intellect in which is placed the conduct and government of life is not less an integral part of man himself than the hand and foot and eyes are portions of the whole animal. Although, indeed, 
a great number of philosophers, have thought that the sense of the mind is not placed in any certain part, but is a kind of vital habit, a resulting power of the body, called by the Greeks a harmony, which causes us to live endowed with a mental sense, though the mind is situate in no particular part of us. As, frequently, when good health is said to be a sensation of the body, and yet this health is itself no portion of the person that enjoys health, so those philosophers place the sense of the mind in no particular part of the person, in which hypothesis they seem to wander far astray. For frequently the body, which is openly seen, is diseased and dejected, while we nevertheless feel pleasure in the other part, which is hid within us. And, on the other hand, again, it often happens that the reverse is the case, when he who is wretched in mind is well in his whole body, just in the same way as if, when the foot of a sick man is pained, his head, in the meantime, happened to be in no pain at all. Besides, when the limbs are resigned to gentle sleep, and the body, heavy with slumber, lies stretched without sense, there is yet something else within us, which, at that very time, is agitated in diverse ways, and admits into itself all the affections of joy, and all the empty solicitudes of the heart. And now also, that you may be further convinced that the soul is actually one among our members, and is not one to hold or occupy the body as a harmony, it happens, in the first place, you may observe, that even when much of the body is taken away, the life nevertheless often remains in the members that are left, and, again, the same life, when a few atoms of the heat of the body have dispersed, and air has been sent forth through the mouth, immediately quits the veins, and relinquishes possession of the bones, so that you may conclude from hence that all particles of the body have not equal parts and powers, but that those which are the constituent atoms of air and quickening heat exercise more influence than others, that life may dwell and be retained in the members, the vital heat, therefore, and air, which desert our limbs when dying, are existent in the body itself, and form a part of it. For which reason, since the nature of the mind and the soul is thus found to exist as a part of man, give back to these philosophers their name of harmony, whether brought down by musicians from lofty helicon, or whether they themselves took it from any other quarter, and transferred it to that object which then wanted a distinctive appellation. Whatsoever is the case, let them have it to themselves. Listen thou to the rest of my arguments. I now affirm that the mind and soul are held united with one another, and form of themselves one nature or substance, but that that which is, as it were, the head, and which rules in the whole body, is the reason, the thinking or intellectual part which we call mind and understanding, and this remains seated in the middle portion of the breast, for here dread and terror throb, around these parts joys soothe, here therefore is the understanding and mind. The other part of the soul, or vital power, distributed through the whole body, obeys and is moved according to the will and impulse of the mind, and this rational or intellectual part thinks of itself alone, and rejoices for itself, at times when nothing of the kind moves either the rest of the soul or the body. And as when the head or the eye, when pain affects it, is troubled in us, 
and as part of us, but we are not afflicted throughout the whole body, so the mind is sometimes grieved itself alone, and is sometimes excited with joy, when the other part of the soul, diffused through the limbs and joints, is stimulated by no new sensations. But when the mind is more than ordinarily shaken by violent terror, we see the whole soul, throughout the several members, sympathize with it, and perspirations and paleness, in consequence, arise over the whole body, and the tongue rendered powerless, and the voice die away, while we find the eyes darkened, the ears ringing, and the limbs sinking underneath. Furthermore, we often see men faint altogether from terror of mind, so that any one may easily understand from this that with the mind is united the soul, which, when it has been acted upon by the power of the mind, then influences and affects the body. This same course of reasoning teaches us that the nature or substance of the mind and soul is corporeal. For when this nature or substance is seen to impel the limbs, to rouse the body from sleep, and to change the countenance, and to guide and turn about the whole man, of which effects we see that none can be produced without touch, and that touch, moreover, cannot take place without body, must we not admit that the mind and soul are of a corporeal nature? Besides, you see that the mind suffers with the body, and sympathizes for us with the body. Thus, if the violent force of a dart driven into the body, the bones and nerves being divided, does not hurt the life itself, yet there follows a languor and a kind of agreeable inclination to sink to the ground, and when we are on the ground, a perturbation and giddiness which is produced in the mind, and sometimes, as it were, an irresolute desire to rise. It therefore necessarily follows that the nature of the mind is corporeal, since it is made to suffer by corporeal weapons and violence. I shall now proceed to give you a demonstration, in plain words, of what substance this mind is, and of what it consists. In the first place, I say that it is extremely subtle, and is formed of very minute atoms, and you may, if you please, give me your attention, in order that you may understand clearly that this is so, from the following arguments. Nothing is seen to be done in so swift a way, as if the mind proposes it to be done, and itself undertakes it. The mind, therefore, impels itself more speedily than anything, among all those of which the nature is manifestly seen before our eyes. But that which is so exceedingly active must consist of atoms exquisitely round and exquisitely minute, that they may be moved when acted on by a slight impulse. For water is moved and flows with so trifling a force as we see act upon it, inasmuch as it is composed of voluble and small particles. But the substance of honey, on the other hand, is more dense, and its fluid sluggish, and its movement more tardy, for its whole mass of material particles clings more closely together, because, as is evident, it consists of atoms neither so smooth nor so small and round, for a gentle and light breeze can make a tall heap of poppy-seed waste away, from the top to the bottom, before your eyes, but, on the contrary, can have no such effect upon a heap of stones and darts. Particles, therefore, according as they are most diminutive, and most smooth, have also the greatest facility of motion. But, on the other hand, 
whatever particles are found of a greater weight and rougher surface are so much the more fixed and difficult to move. Since, therefore, the nature of the mind has been found preeminently active, it must of necessity consist of particles exceedingly diminutive and smooth and round, which point, being thus known to you, my excellent friend, will be found useful and be of advantage in many of your future inquiries. This fact also indicates the nature of the soul, and shows of how subtle a texture it consists, and in how small a space it would contain itself if it could be condensed, because, when the tranquil repose of death has taken possession of a man, and the substance of the mind and the soul has departed, you can there perceive nothing detracted as to appearance, nothing as to weight, from the whole body. Attend, this potent truth thou'lt well perceive, for what its point so swiftly can achieve as mind, in boundless nature what can vie with its unlimited velocity? Death leaves all things entire, except vital sense and quickening heat. It must therefore necessarily be the case that the whole soul consists of extremely small seminal atoms, connected and diffused throughout the veins, the viscera, and the nerves, inasmuch as, when the whole of it has departed from the whole of the body, the extreme outline of the members still shows itself unaltered, nor is an atom of weight withdrawn, just as is the case when the aroma of wine has flown off, or when the sweet odour of ointment has passed away into the air, or when the flavour has departed from any savoury substance. For still the substance itself does not, on that account, appear diminished to the eye, nor does anything seem to have been deducted from the weight evidently because many and minute atoms compose the flavour and odour throughout the whole constitution of bodies. End of section 7